chapter uh, 1 is where we're looking tonight, Matthew chapter 1, and I want you to look there in verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. We see how clearly and how directly the Holy Spirit records for us. It says, this is exactly as it was. The birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused, betrothed, engaged in our vernacular, but far different in their land, that meaning of that word, to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily or privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, In a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take into thee Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. And shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let us pray. Our Lord, as we read the record of your birth, We pray that we would afresh and anew ponder these things, that you came to earth, born of a virgin, the miracles that surrounded your coming, all the prophecies that are fulfilled. Lord, we think of Joseph. May we, like him, be prayerful in our decisions and mindful of your will, even when things do not uh, feel comfortable with us and our reputation may be at stake. May we, may we be willing to suffer our reputations for the cause of Jesus Christ. May we not regard the, the, the estimation of man. The fear of man bringeth a snare, your word says. And while we understand Joseph's predicament, you've given us this godly example of how to live and order our lives and to make decisions. And may we risk all that we have and count dear for the cause of our Savior. If we think of Mary, how confused she must have been at this announcement, at her being chosen. And Lord, we too marvel that you've chosen us, that you've made us your own. By your own sovereign grace, we're yours, and we thank you for our great salvation. Now, Lord, bring these things anew to us. We marvel at them. May we learn them and tell them to others. Lord, we pray that the gospel would go forth in power and authority. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It certainly is amazing, isn't it, as we consider our Lord coming to earth. Everything about his birth is absolutely amazing. There are several miraculous births mentioned in the scriptures. We've studied the life of Abraham and the birth of Isaac, his son. His mother, almost 100 years old, had been barren until the Lord miraculously caused her to conceive and give birth. Manoah's wife, the mother of Samson, was also barren, but the Bible tells us that the Lord opened her womb 
and gave her Samson, one of the most amazing and unusual men of the scriptures, one of Israel's deliverers who killed lions and Philistines and, and, and brought down a, a, a pagan temple where he was chained, an amazing man and with strength. I remember looking in our family Bible, which was on the coffee table in the living room. We had two things on the coffee table. Well, three things. One was a scale. I don't know why a brass scale my mother had there that we constantly knocked off and, and messed up. And the other was the family Bible and a, a children's Bible storybook. And in both of those, there were uh, pictures of Samson, you know, those beautiful old master pictures. And I remember, for some reason, I was drawn to that, that picture of Samson, his eyes gouged out in the temple of Dagon, and uh, just as he's about to bring the, the temple down on them. And I remember looking at that. Samson's birth was a miraculous birth. And then Hannah was barren. The Bible says that God had shut her womb, but Hannah prayed, and she prayed not only for a child, she prayed very specifically for a son. And the Lord answered that request and gave her a son. And she said, I will loan him to you all the days of his life. And there was no more godly priest, no more godly man in the scriptures in the Old Testament than Samuel. He ministered to kings. He ministered to the children of Israel and had a long and, and godly ministry among them in answer to a woman's prayer and a miraculous birth. Elizabeth was barren, but the Lord allowed her to bear the forerunner of our Savior, John the Baptist, of whom our Lord said in Matthew 11, verse 11, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. What a compliment from the Savior about John the Baptist. But the greatest birth recorded in the Scriptures is the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we say from the outset that the Bible clearly and definitively states that he was virgin-born. This is one of the key tenets of the scriptures, and, and, no, and no wonder that it is often ridiculed and, and criticized and denied by people outside the faith and even some who profess to be believers. I don't know what believers in what. There are those liberal uh, preachers and, and theologians who decry the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, to which I've always said, why don't they just go get an honest job making a living doing something they totally believe in instead of picking and choosing the things of the scriptures they want to believe. To cut this portion of scripture out, you might as well throw away the Bible. There's no Bible, there's no gospel without the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And we should, at his birth, emphasize the fact of what the scripture says about it. The Bible clearly states that Jesus Christ was conceived by a miracle of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. Now, all the disciples who became the apostles risked their lives on this, died martyrs' death for the, the veracity of the teaching of our Lord's coming into earth, being the sinless Son of God and dying and rising again. They preached it with all assurity. All the New Testament believers believed there was no such thing as a member of a New Testament assembly who did not believe and hold tenaciously to the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. In fact, there is no true believer in Christ who do not believe all that the Scripture tells about him. And we say that without apology. This is no pick and choose. This is not a cafeteria when you come to the Scripture and say, this I can believe, this sounds plausible. I read recently the Wall Street Journal of the, the new movie coming out. And is it something I ever so often they bring out a new movie, an epic, they say, and now we have Moses coming back again. And uh, there was a whole article of a scientist d d describing away the crossing of the Red Sea. 
And for a moment, I almost clipped it to put in my files, and I thought, well, why, you know, why, you know, muddy up my files with stuff that just, you know, someone else's viewpoint of how it didn't take place. But the scriptures teach these things, and 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 the the teaching about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and His virgin birth is not something that you can pick or choose or take or leave. It is part of the very veracity and the teaching of the whole of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the New Testament believers believed it and held to it that Jesus was born of a virgin and was the Son of God. The lengthy passage of Scripture that was read in the Scripture reading attests to that. Jesus said, I am God, I and my Father are one. And he goes on to, to, to describe that he is, he is God and to be God, to be the Son of God, deity, he had to be sinless and to be virgin born. Here in the first gospel, it is amazing, and although it may not should be, that the first book of the New Testament record, Matthew clearly and unquestionably declares the virgin birth of Jesus Christ right from the start. Unless Jesus is both human and divine, both God and man, there is no gospel, no good news to tell. The major supporting pillar of Christianity is the incarnation of Christ, that God became man, took on a body. Everything else is built upon this truth. Being both God and man, he was able to fulfill all the demands, the requirements of the Old Testament law, to die and rise again for our reconciliation to God, his sinless life, his death on the cross in our place and for our sins, his burial and resurrection on the third day, his ascension into heaven, all these stand together or fall together. You cannot pick out one of those teachings of Christ and leave off any others. They're all a part of a whole. You cannot pick and choose which you'll hold to and those you'll discard and be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I repeat that. Some may say, well, Pastor, that's very narrow. Yes, it is a narrow gate. It is a narrow door. And that door is Jesus Christ. And all that he says about himself and all that the writers of Scripture say about him must be adhered to. You cannot even take Jesus' word for anything he said in that lengthy passage that we read tonight where he declares to be equal with God and the Son of God. If you, you cannot take any of his... Some people pick and choose. Well, I like, they may say, the... Uh, Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, and I'll take that as a mantra to live by. How could you? Why would you? If you take that as truth and, not, and, and other things that Jesus Christ say are not truth, you make him a liar. And so this is so, so very vitally important. In Matthew 22, verse 42, Jesus asked, What think ye of Christ, the Messiah? Uh, whose son is he? And that's the thrust of our teaching tonight. What do you think of Jesus Christ? What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? Well, this is the central question Matthew seeks to answer in the very first chapter of his record. Jesus human is human, the, the son of God. And he's both human and the son of man, and he is God and the son of God. Uh, many conservative Jews didn't expect, you might find it surprising, even in Jesus' day, those who were looking for the Messiah, many of them did not think that he would necessarily have to be divine. He could be a ruler, he could be a deliverer, and set them free. And uh, it was not commonly held that Jesus would be divine, just to be the Messiah. 
And we, we somewhat, from our perspective, look back and think they must have all think like we thought, those who were looking for a deliverer. They were looking for a, a military leader, many of them were, to overthrow the literal Roman dominion. Whether he was an outstanding general or a good teacher or whatever, that, that was not the crux of the matter as it should have been because the, the, the prophets are very clear on what, who Jesus would be and who the Messiah would be. But not all of them held uh, in Jesus' day that, that Messiah would be divine. Well, we see here in verse 18, the Bible says, Now this is how it happened. The birth of Jesus was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, Never saying that Joseph is the father. Do you see how careful the Holy Spirit is, the words that he chooses? His mother, Mary, yes. But Joseph is referred to as just Joseph. Before they came together, again, the emphasis on the timing of it all, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now, this is divinely revealed truth. Too marvelous too unbelievable from a human perspective apart from divine revelation. And I say that to say this, no human writer would just throw that in their narrative of their own because immediately the questions rise, you've got to be kidding. What are you, what are you talking about? Nothing of the kind could take place. And so this is one of the uh, veracities or the testament that the scriptures is indeed inspired because no human writer of his own would even come up with that and try to support it and, and, and declare it to be true. I think sometimes people think that those who preach the whole authority of God's word and the absolute veracity of all of it may grapple with portions of scripture like this. And may I say this, and I don't mean this in a prideful way whatsoever. I rejoice that in my testimony in my life that the, the whatever the scripture has the lord has revealed to me in the scripture i have never found it hard to preach can i just say it that way and i say that from coming from a background of a very liberal church uh, whose pastors did not always attest to the the veracity of the scriptures they did pick and choose and uh, explain away uh, portions of scriptures and and make some of it to be fables and just uh, you know, spiritual teachings. But even as a little boy, I, I, I remember on one occasion I've shared with you often of a pastor when it, that we had uh, began teaching on the book of Jonah, and he just clearly out from the beginning said, now we know this, we do not take this to be literally true. The only problem is my Sunday school teachers in that church had done a better job than the pastor had, and they told me that that was true, and my mother had told me it was true, and I believed it to be true. And I say that I praise God that I, and in his working in my life as a pastor and as a preacher of the word of God, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me to or have difficulty to take hard portions of scripture and declare them with all authority. Uh, I will tell you that there are some doctrines and there's some portions of scriptures that are deep waters and it, you, you try to do your best to explain it the best you can, but as standing up for it or defending it, I praise God for it. Uh, someone asked Spurgeon one time, what do you do with those hard verses? He says, I love them. That's the ones I pick for text and just go at it and explain them and preach them with all the authority. God honors all of his word. It brings great glory to him for us to stand on this, his word and to declare it with all authority. And so uh, I, I have no problem, although I will admit with you that this is a mystery and we marvel at it.
And while I cannot do it justice, I believe it with every fiber of my body. This is divine truth. It is so otherworldly that no ordinary tax collector would have come up with it. Let's face it, where would Matthew have gotten such a teaching had it not been from the Lord himself? He would not have come up with it out of the clear blue on his own. In one verse, Matthew flatly declares, this is how it happened. Now, we say Matthew, he's the human author, the Holy Spirit leading him what to write. This is what took place. And we see how, with a surety in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. This is exactly what took place. His mother, was in, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. And before they came together intimately as husband and wife, she was found of child of the Holy Spirit, period. That's what he says. Now, we don't know how much about, we don't have much information in the scriptures about Mary. She was no doubt from a poor family and a poor background. And when you read Matthew, Mark, and John's account, and you learn that she had a, a sister named Salome, that, she, that, that Salome was the mother of James and John. And so they were, James and John were Jesus' cousins. And Luke tells us that she was from the line, Mary was from the line of David. We know that Zacharias' wife, Elizabeth, was a relative, probably a cousin of Mary's. These, Joseph, and the other children that Mary and Joseph had after the birth of Jesus, is all that we're told of her relatives. She, no doubt, was a godly young lady. We can only marvel at what she must have been like within. For God in his sovereign majesty and power to choose her to be the mother of the Son of God. We can only marvel at what kind of person she was. She was open to the Lord's will, willing to do it, though she was humbled by it and I'm sure scared, humanly speaking, and had questions in her mind. She did not fight it. She asked questions like all of us would, but when the angel gave her the information she needed, she asked for no more. She pondered these things in her heart. And when Gabriel, the angel, told her she would bear the Son of God, she said, I am the bond slave of the Lord. Now, the, the King James says handmaid, but that's a, a nice way of saying I'm a bought slave of the Lord. And let him do with me whatever he wants to. That is is the sign of a totally surrendered and godly person. I'm his. He owns me. She got it, didn't she? How few people ever get to that point in their spiritual lives. I am the Lord's. He created me. He made me. He can do with this body whatever he wants to do. Now, that, and that, I'm sure that Mary, all of her life, there was a shadow over this part of her life. Uh, and, and, jo and Joseph as well. And that was part of bearing reproach for Christ, which we all are to bear his reproach. It will not, we will not be totally understood in our uh, command and in our intention to follow the Lord. Mary knew she was, had never known man. She knew she was a virgin. She asked the angel in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, How can these things be, seeing I know not a man? Can you imagine her trying to grapple with these things? Elizabeth, her cousin, told her, Blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. You're blessed in believing and taking him at his word. The Lord will perform all those things that he told you in you. 
I, I rejoice that in the, the scripture gives us this wonderful friendship of Elizabeth and Mary. And I've always thought that Elizabeth was older than Mary. Um, and it, from the script, the, the, what the scripture hints at it. And she is a picture of the older women teaching the younger women. And uh, Elizabeth's example and encouragement is so vitally important. And the Lord records it for us. And so we can take uh, insight of how to deal with people and help them when they're going through uh, these kinds of things in life. And though Mary's hymns of praise, when we read it, uh, we, we see in Luke chapter 1, and what people call the Magnificat, her hymn of praise, we see in her a submissive, humble, reverent, praising God for his wondrous work in her. And in verse 47 of her song, she says, My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. And so we learn a lot by that, that she was a sinner in need of a Savior. As I mentioned on Wednesday night, the Catholic Church teaches that Mary herself was uh, conceived without a father, that she was immaculately conceived. None of the early church writers, the the apostles of the early church writers taught such a thing. And uh, that is absolutely opposite. There's not one shred of scripture to support such teaching. It is man-made. And Mary needed a Savior. Only sinners need Savior. And she called the baby she was carrying in her womb, my God and my Savior. She got it, didn't she? She understood uh, that what was, what was taking place in her. She was not ignorant. She was not, um, I don't know how to say it. She had the spiritual insight as far as the Lord gave to her. What was happening, she knew she was having, and her baby was the Son of God. She says, my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. And in verse 49, for he that is mighty hath done, or he that is almighty, hath done to me great things. And holy is his name. She bowed before this thing. Now, again, when I say this thing, this thing that was taking place in her, the tendency would be to reject that. This is not fair. I didn't ask for this. What are people going to say? All the the things that we can think about on a human level. Her own family. Her own uh, fiancé didn't understand it and began to reject her for a while. In answer to Mary's question about the virgin birth and how it could be, Gabriel told her in in Luke chapter 1 verse 35, and I'll just just mention there how he describes uh, what's going to take place. This is the answer. When you have Matthew's account in, in, in Matthew one eighteen, and Luke's account in Luke 1, verse 35, this is all that is told us of how the virgin birth came about. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And that's the only, and then verse 37, for with God nothing shall be impossible. That's the only explanation Mary was given, as far as we know, as far as what is recorded for us. And it was sufficient for her, and if it was sufficient for the, the mother who was going to bear the Lord Jesus, who knew she was a virgin, it ought to be sufficient for us who are reading it these many years later. And to our questioning minds, we ought to as well take what Mary t- took and said, Holy and Reverend is his name. 
we don't have much information about Joseph either. We see here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, that his father's name was Jacob, and that he was a carpenter or a construction worker who worked with wood, building, and most importantly, the Bible tells us in verse 19 that as we read about Simeon this morning, that he was a just man. He was saved. He was righteous. He had been justified. And, and there was such a remnant of people who truly knew the Lord, who were truly saved, but Joseph was one of them. Girls were usually very young when they were betrothed uh, to be married. Uh, betrothal, it was much more, as you know, binding than what we refer to as engagement, although that's the closest thing that we can compare it to in our culture. It was, uh, it was much more than the flimsy <laughs> engagements that we are used to in our culture. For, for, the, for one thing, they, they were arranged by parents with little or no input from the, the young man and the young lady. Now, that in itself is a marvel to us, isn't it? And uh, they were, the parents got together and decided, my daughter will marry your son, and your son marry my daughter. And in many cases, the groom and the bride were never consulted about this arrangement that was made for them. The contract was drawn up. A betrothal was a contract, a binding contract, and it was sealed by the paying of a dowry or the bride price by the groom's parents to the bride's parents. This was not only for the upcoming uh, wedding expenses, which were at least a year off. There was a probation period from the time of the beginning of the betrothal until the actual marriage ceremony and the consummation of the, of the marriage. There was a, a year's time of probation to prove both of the young people and especially the young lady. And if, if, if anything happened during that period of time, the contract would be broken because of that. Now, that money was also insurance money because if the groom backed out on it in that period of time, the, the bride's parents kept the bride price. And as you remember at the wedding of Cana, a marriage in that day and time, I was talking to my brother yesterday who's about to have the third wedding for the third daughter. And I said, oh, my, I can't imagine. He said, well, by this time, it's just, you know, it's old hat and all the decisions and the planning and so forth. But... Uh, the weddings in that time lasted at least a week, and they feasted and ate every day, and they had to put on, the, the people came from far and wide, they came and stayed, and uh, can you imagine, we don't have anything to compare that to, and if it wasn't a good show, uh, people could could really complain about it, it was like, you know, if it, and that's why when the man came and said, you, you put forth the, you've saved the best wine until to last. Most of the times when they put on these receptions, they put all the good stuff out first and food, and then it's used up and just raking and scraping to keep, but people would come for several days and eat and, and just carry on for, for days. And so it was quite a thing. This uh, was a binding contract from the moment it was made, and they were counted as being married legally. Uh, even though the wedding ceremony hadn't taken place and had, would not be consummated for at least a year. Uh, this betrothal period, as I've mentioned, served as a time of probation and of testing of faithfulness, and the bride and groom had, had almost no social contact with one another. They may have seen each other from afar, but, but often they didn't see each other at all until the actual wedding day. Now, in our culture, all of that is unthinkable, <laughs> both from the 
the prospective bride and groom's viewpoint and, and, and parents as well. And, but it worked, and that was a cultural thing. Now, that's not a scriptural thing. I mean, it's not something that we're to practice, and all the young people breathe a big sigh of relief because you're trying to picture your mother and daddy picking out somebody for you. And uh, although we could talk about that, you know, I'm sure that, that uh, th- those that I've talked to, and those con- we had dear friends who were from a country that do that, and they were in our home several times, and uh, they had no say-so whatsoever in their, their uh, wedding their marriage. And uh, I remember asking, I said, well, and they were so happily married. I mean, they were just absolutely, you could tell they were in love with one another. And they just act like it was the most normal thing in the world. That's just, that's the way it happened. Their parents got it together. And, uh, and I asked, could you have said no once you saw, did you see a picture of him or anything? She said, well, yes, they would show me a picture. And I'd, I'd say, okay, okay, I think so. And she, I said, well, if you had not wanted to, could you have said no? And she said, well, I probably could have. And he said it as well, but, but it's usually not done. You know, if they just absolutely were abhorred by it, they could have, you know, backed out. But uh, usually I think the parents kind of knew what their children would have, uh, which direction they would lean. But all that's unthinkable to us, but that was the way it was done in this time. Purity, the Bible emphasizes the fact over and over again in the biblical record that both Mary and Joseph had not come together or physically consummated their marriage when Mary was found with child. We see it very clearly here in the Scripture. Purity is highly prized in the Scripture, and abstinence before marriage is the biblical standard. It may, not, it may be seemed old-fashioned and not a part of our culture, but nothing pure is a part of our culture today, rarely. But this is the biblical standard, as well as faithfulness within the marriage relationship. The law of God commands, thou shalt not commit adultery to the married. And of everyone that's not married, the Bible requires, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, his body, in sanctification and honor. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is one of the greatest mysteries, one of those great mysteries of the Bible and of our faith. We do not say there are no mysteries here because this is God's work and word. Even if God gave us more information, there are those who say, well, it just doesn't say much about it. There's a, the Bible is sketchy, for lack of better words, on many important topics the creation is given just a few verses. Let there be light. There was light. And a few verses, we are told all that God wants us to know about his creative power. Do you know why? Even if he told us more, we couldn't understand it. Ex nihilo, creation of something out of nothing. That, that we, we had nothing to relate that to. The eternality of God, that God has no beginning or ending. How could he give us more information that we would understand that in our finiteness? or the, the triunity of God, or I'll bring it just home, the regeneration, our salvation. Can you explain that? Jesus told Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. He is sovereign. He comes where he will. And then he opens your hearts and minds and shows you the truth of your sinfulness and Christ's mercy and grace, and that you comprehend that, and that you come to a place of repentance, and that divine work of regeneration, the new birth takes place in your heart. Can you explain that? That is, uh, that is no less a mystery 
than the virgin birth of Jesus Christ or that Jesus being raised from the dead. We cannot fully comprehend these things. Guess what? That's why they're called mysteries, and there are many of them in the Scripture. The Old Testament declared that Messiah would have a miraculous birth. Jeremiah 31 verse 22 uh, speaks of that the Lord hath created a new thing or a miraculous thing that a woman shall compass a man. Now, there are those who say that does not refer to the virgin birth because the word woman is not virgin. However, many believe that 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 is one of the verses that talk about this new miraculous thing that would take place in the virgin birth. Of course, Isaiah 7 verse 14 is what is referred to here in the scripture, the key Old Testament verse declaring the virgin birth. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold... That word that's used to call our attention to the miraculous. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, incomprehensible, and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. God told Eve that the Savior would come through the woman, the seed of woman. Again, an incomprehensible thing because biologically, We argue and know that the seed comes from the man. But the Bible tells us the woman's seed would bruise the serpent's head. Mary's impregnation came by the Holy Spirit and is the only instance in the history of humankind that a woman had a seed within her that did not come from a man. Paul tells us in Galatians 4 verse 4, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem that, them that were under the law. No mention of a man. Made of a woman, made under the law. He was under all the, 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 the authority, the ramifications of the Old Testament law, fulfilling them to the, the minutest detail. We're told here of Joseph's problem. And let us agree, he does have a problem, doesn't he? What's he to make of the news We're not told how the news came to him. Could it be that Mary's parents, who were part of the contract, brought to him the news that that Mary was expecting? Or some other way, we're not told how he found out, but we do know this. When the news came, it was troubling and perplexing, and Joseph didn't know what to do. Do you know what to do when you don't know what to do? Can I give you some advice? I think if we learn anything from Joseph's life, what to do when we don't know what to do. For one thing, we wait, don't we? We wait upon the Lord. He that believeth shall not make haste. And while Joseph thought on these things, he began to think, this is meditation, the lost art of God's people, to ponder the events of life, the teaching of God's word, the truths of God, the dark things, the deep places, the treasures of darkness, as we mentioned this morning. Joseph is in a perplexing situation. And the decisions he make will affect all of humanity. And I'm not saying that all the decisions that we make are on that level, but they are God's will for our lives. And the Bible tells us while he thought on these things, he, he considered one thing, putting her away, divorcing her. The betrothal could only be broken by divorce or breaking because it was as binding as marriage. He would do that. He decided he came up with his own plan, as we often do. And usually the plan that we come up with to start with is the last thing that God wants us to do. 
He decided, you know what? I love Mary, and I don't understand this. And I'm going to put her away, but I'm going to do it in such a private way that she will not be harmed, and no one will know about it. No one will know about it? Well, there's a lot of people who know about the betrothal. They're all their families do, and others know that this young couple are meant for each other and are set apart for each other. And so even our plans like that don't cover all the bases, do they? And um, while Joseph thought on these things, the Bible tells us, the Lord came to him, and he has given what, what to do. Only a messenger from heaven can straighten out this situation. And while we do not have angels coming down and saying, this is what you need to do, we have something far greater, something far more authoritative than an angel from heaven. Remember, Paul said, even if an angel from heaven came and preached you another gospel, you refuse it and take this one. And so we have all that God wants us to know, all the, all the information that we need to make life decisions. And if you lack wisdom, what can you do? Ask of God who giveth liberally and upbraideth not. And so there are perplexing things that will happen to us in life, none on this level, but some devastating in our own life that we wonder what to do and how to go about it. One thing Joseph knew, he knew this, he was not the father of the child that Mary was carrying. He knew that, and Mary knew that. He didn't want to bring public shame to her, and so... Uh, and that was a common thing in that day. If someone was found unfaithful, a big ordeal would be done about it. A public divorce would have been made. And you realize that the Old Testament scripture even called for, if Joseph had pushed it for Mary to have been stoned, wouldn't Satan have loved that? Don't you think he would have gotten that together if he could have? He would do anything to end the, 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 uh, Jesus Christ coming into the world. And I'm sure that in this period of time while Joseph thought on these things, don't you know he was oppressed by Satan and that the thoughts uh, to come to him to, to destroy this marriage? But Joseph is such a godly man. He cares more for Mary's welfare than his own reputation. Let me ask you and, and me tonight, do we care more about the glory of our Savior than we do our own reputation? Many people say, oh, yes, Brother Lamb, and yet... We have locked jaw when it comes to speak for him. Oh, what will people think? Well, if I do that thing, if I have that kind of ministry, if I join that church, or there are even those who, who have not followed the Lord in believer's baptism because they're scared. They're, they're wondering what people will say and do. What about your reputation? Your reputation matters not at all. It's Jesus Christ in you is the only hope that you have. And that's what we surrender to, the, the reputation of Jesus Christ. All he could do, he thought, was secretly divorce her. But God intervenes in verse 20, and the angel said, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. She's still his wife. The Lord still considers it that. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Well, Joseph had his questions answered. He was told definitively by the angel of the Lord that Mary had not been unfaithful to him. And the, the Holy Spirit has placed this, this, the Son of God in Mary's womb. And that we notice that absolutely profound statement in the latter part of verse 20. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. This is God's ultimate and final answer to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. This is the record for all time. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. 
verse 21, he sh- she shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, Joshua, the Old Testament rendering of it. Jehovah saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. Joseph will be the guardian, the stepfather in our vernacular, the physical earthly father to Jesus as far as he could be and act on his behalf as an earthly father would. His name is given as Jesus, and he will be the provision of God for the salvation of his people. We see there in verse 22, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. He testifies to the veracity of the Old Testament scripture. And this gives us a clear, plain, simple definition of the inspiration of the Bible. God tells the human writer what to say. The human writer in the earthly means or is the earthly means or the instrument that God uses to record the word of God. All through his gospel, Matthew uses this saying, the saying that this might be fulfilled, might be fulfilled. You'll see that repeatedly indicating that all that Jesus said was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Then Joseph being raised from sleep, God often brought these kinds of messages while people slept, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife. He obeyed. It's one thing to think about things. It's one thing to pray about them. It's one thing to agree with them in your mind. Yes, preacher, that's right. It's quite another thing to get up and do the right thing, to do what the Lord commands us to do. Joseph obeyed immediately. Though he no doubt had many questions, he knew he would suffer reproach, but he now had a a clear mission from the Lord to be the guardian of the Son of God. Think about that. Think about the home that God chose, the parents that he chose to raise the, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a fine man Joseph must have been. One of the finest in all the scriptures to entrust his son into a family such as Mary and Joseph. But I want to remind you, parents, God has entrusted you with immortal souls. He's chosen you to to bear that child and those children that you have to rear. And you're duty-bound to rear them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. No less, no less than Mary and Joseph were in rearing the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you know they taught him all the Old Testament word? They were to him in all things as what parents should be, and we as, should be as well. He took Mary. We know that Joseph took Jesus to be dedicated. We studied about that this morning. He fulfilled all the scripture. He was a godly father. He went by the word of God. He took Mary and Joseph to Egypt to protect them from Herod's insane uh, infanticide. He was prudent. He was wise. He acted wisely and protectively. We see him bring his family to the Passover in Jerusalem when when Jesus was 12 years old, doing all that a faithful Jewish man would do. He obeyed and named him Jesus, indicating that he believed him to be the Savior, his Savior. Someone has written, the supernatural birth of Jesus is the only way to account for the life he lived. A skeptic once asked, who denied the virgin birth, once asked a Christian, if I told you that that child over there was born without a human father, would you believe me? To which the believer replied, yes, if he lived like Jesus lived, I'd believe it. The greatest outward evidence that Jesus' uh, Jesus' supernatural birth 
and deity was the life he lived. No man spake like this man. No man could do the things he did except God sent him. This is what the scripture says. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. The Bible says the birth of Jesus was like this, on this wise. And for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Oh, may we ponder these things. May we spend much time during this season thinking about what our Lord did for us and what we're to do for him. He has chosen us to be his light. Uh, And he didn't say you should be light. You are light. You are salt. And that's what he's left us here until he comes again. Occupy till I come. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ponder these things and say with the songwriter, what child is this? Oh, what manner of man is this? The people would say as they heard and saw him minister and move among them. Now, Lord, we praise you and thank you for these glorious truths that we've studied tonight. Help us, Lord, to see them and to declare them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.